This is the true story of a New York City boy with big town hopes and small neighborhood dreams of becoming BFFs with the Real Housewives and other Bravo celebrities. Then, one day, that dream actually came true. Let me take you behind the velvet rope. Hey guys, this is David. Welcome back behind the velvet rope. Let's just get right into it today because we are joined by the director. There's much more to her than just this, but we are joined by the director of This Is Paris, Miss Alexandra Dean. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you? What's going on? I'm okay, you know, hanging in there, sitting in my attic, dreaming about what it would be like to have a movie premiere that you could actually attend. <laughs> right? Where is this attic that you're in? I know you're East Coast, but where? It's in Long Island. It's my parents' house. This is where we've been since, since March 13th. Wow. So, I mean, so I'm in New York City, so you're, like, close by. Yeah. Usually I'm in New York City, but not, not right now. You guys just, where did you live in New York City? Up West Side, you know, by the park. My kids are uh, eight and 11, so they go to school up there, usually. Wow, so you like left right away. Yeah, we, we left because um, I think we, we heard this crazy rumor that all the bridges were gonna get shut. Do you remember that night? Everybody in New York thought all the bridges and everything were gonna get shut down. Yeah. And we like zoomed out that night with all our stuff and we have not been back. I mean, we went, went back like two days, but uh, I think we kind of got a taste for country life. So now we're taking the advantage, you know, we're taking advantage of this to be remote for a year. It's so is that like what it is? Like there's like remote schooling now? Yeah, there's remote schooling. And, you know, honestly, when we try to all work from home, it's a disaster. We're like fighting over the bathroom for our Zoom calls. So... There's a lot, well, this is why the city is, like, it's weird, like, at night, when you go out now in New York, it does feel almost normal at night, because, like, restaurants outside are busy, but, like, last night, so last night I was eating, I was having drinks and dinner, because you can't just have drinks anymore in New York, you have to order. Right, you have to have dinner, right or something so like we were done at like 9 30 10 and we were like let's go to another place well i found out last night i didn't realize every place closes at 11 o'clock now i didn't know that i think i don't i think it's a law like you have to be close i don't know you ha I, maybe it's just but i mean we went to like a million and so what happens is like the kitchen closes earlier so we were trying to go for like another drink somewhere at like 10 15 10 o'clock and they're like yes there's tables but there's no more food so like the kitchen's closed so even though we close at 11 you can't sit because we can't serve you anything and i'm like but you have i mean we'll give you money like can't we just have drinks and like i think by law you can't just have drinks i, I don't know if it's all law, no. no place would let us sit. you have to be home by 11 30 and so now all of new york knows what it's like to be over 40 i'm like <laughs> is this what is so this is why people have left new york i think you're just like if I yeah. have to live like I'm in the suburbs, I might as well pay suburb prices. That's exactly it. Well, I'm still here in New York. I don't know what I'm doing here. I, I did the opposite of you. I was like, well, I heard the bridges were closing, but I was like, all right, so I'm going to be trapped in New York for like three weeks or a month. Like, all right, I have, what's the difference? I didn't realize it would extend for this long. Right. So, 
crazy. But, it's been the craziest year of my life, and I'm sure you sh share that sentiment. Oh my God. So you're from Long Island originally? No, you know what's weird? I'm from London, but my parents are both Americans. So they raised me as an American in London. Really? Yeah. Expat kid. So you grew up in London? Yeah, entirely. I came here for college. And yet you have absolutely no accent. It comes out like when I'm angry or nervous, this weird British accent comes out and people think I'm putting it on, but actually it's my real accent that's coming through and the American one is falling away. Isn't that weird? Well, I mean, now that you say it, okay, yes, I can hear like a tiny, tiny bit of a very tiny bit of a British accent, but that's so interesting. Did you love, yeah. did you live like right in the heart of London, like in the city? Yes and no. I, I lived in a very unfashionable suburb in the north of the city, um, you know, where nobody went. But I did love living in London. It was a great city to grow up in in a lot of ways. But not that different from New York. I mean, New York and London are really twin cities in many ways. It, they really are. And then yeah. when you went to college, you said, what, you came to New York City specifically? I really wanted to come to New York. Yeah, that was my dream. And luckily, my husband is English, agreed that New York would be the dream. And he said a few times, like, I don't think I would have followed you to the U.S. if you were going, <laughs> if you were going to, like, the Midwest, to Missouri. I don't think I would have gone there. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, there are worse places to be besides New York City, right? Yeah. So he came and... Yeah, now we're English parents in New York. I love it, on the Upper West Side. Yeah. Did you, so like growing up, like w did you have the whole trajectory of like, I wanna be this, I wanna be that, or were you always just like, I wanna go into entertainment, I wanna be a director, like, or were you all over the place? So the funny story about me is my mother wrote children's books. And anyone out there who was a little girl who wanted to be a ballerina will know them, because they're called, Angelina Ballerina, and it's a little dancing mouse. And as a kid, I would tell my mother my, you know, most deep and dark secrets, like when nobody wanted to play with me on the playground and stuff, and she would make it into a children's book. And suddenly there it would be for all the world to see, you know? And part of me was like thrilled about that, and part of me was horrified. <laughs> but I think what it did is it made me always want to be a storyteller. And, you know, obviously over the years, because my mother would ask me for these stories and they would become something, I probably refined that, you know? I tried to make things more interesting. I, I looked for the funny and the sad, you know? So the storytelling came through and I've always wanted to be a storyteller. I just didn't know what form it was gonna take for many years. So when you were young and, I mean, were you like mortified in a way? Like my whole, I mean, you know, cause look, when you're a kid, you don't really yes. have perspective where you like the whole world knows what I'm going through now. I mean, even though they didn't really know it was you, you probably thought that. Oh, so the one Angelina that really is about her being unbelievably unpopular and not being able to get a friend and like crying on the playground is dedicated to me. Oh, that's <laughs> always wonderful. Like, she's like, it's your story, Alex. I wanted the world to know. Thanks. Wow. But yeah, you know, yeah, you're mortified as a kid. And then, you know, you grow up and you realize it's really cool to see that process, see somebody taking stories out in the world, making them into something for people to read. And so many people love my mother's books and I always saw them responding to them. So I had, you know, I had a sense of awe about her process, what she'd done. Yeah, like how interesting. I mean, that sounds, now that you say it, like Angelina Ballerina at Dancing Mouse, that kind of sounds familiar. 
Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm just saying that, but it sounds familiar. Yeah. It's like the, it was a big thing in the eighties and the nineties, but now, you know, it's pretty weird that I identify with a fat dancing mouse. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> that is like, so you always knew you wanted to tell stories in some respect. Yeah. So were you, so you came to New York, what, did you come for NYU or am I just? I, I didn't, mean, my just, brother came for that's, NYU. My that's brother just the natural assumption when someone's in film. Yeah. No, I wasn't that focused. I was a real little nerdy academic and I, uh, I went to Harvard and I studied history and literature and like, you know, super wanted to like be an academic and then realized when I handed in my thesis and my thesis advisor said to me, I think you should think about being like a journalist or a writer that I didn't, I didn't think like an academic. I didn't want to spend my life examining these little details. I wanted to tell the big stories and I wanted to be entertaining. And so I left academia behind and, you know, I tried out a bunch of other things, but eventually I realized journalism was where I wanted to be because journalists can tell stories all the time and they can be different stories. So I was a print journalist. Uh, I was a short form documentary journalist for many years. I worked on Bill Moyer's show now, which was like the domestic frontline. And they sent me around America for five years doing mini docs on any issue I wanted. Uh, but I had to find a really compelling character to follow. That was the only caveat. And it was an incredible kind of boot camp for documentary filmmaking. Every three months, you got to turn around another mini doc, 22 minutes. So that's where it all kind of started for me with Doc. And then from there, I started Feature Docs. So growing up, were you like a big movie person, like a big pop culture, TV, music, or none of that, just all in the books? I was, <laughs> I was pretty nerdy. Uh, I know I did, I definitely, you know, I definitely read my Hello Magazine. I was in the UK, right? Hello, Ola, you know, I loved uh, Grazie, loved. You know, go get my manicures, read the, the, I mean, it was my guilty pleasure. Always has been. I grew up obsessed with pop culture, so I am not judging. <laughs> I mean, but you, when you went to Harvard, your parents must have been like, bravo, or did they not care? They're like, we'll support you. I mean, you know, if I went to Harvard, my parents would probably like get on their hands and knees and like bow down. Like you don't just wake oh, up God, and get, only. you don't just get into Harvard. Like that's not a bad place to go. I'm a middle child and my brother and sister are very good at keeping the spotlight. So I don't know how much, you know, I think they were kind of surprised, pleasantly surprised, shall we say, but there wasn't that much attention paid to it. And I think that was probably really healthy for me. They never really paid any attention to me. <laughs> so I did my own thing and um, maybe I do what I do to get attention. There you go, now we know. So the middle child pathology. That is middle child pathology. So there was never like this pressure of like, you know, like a lot of times you hear like, don't go into the entertainment business, you know, it could be, or it wasn't your, your parents. I mean, especially probably with what your mother did, it was always just like, be happy. And oh no, actually, funnily enough. So my dad was her publisher, but then he became a television producer. And I do distinctly remember him saying, you can do anything but this. And I, I went, yeah, it looks like a terrible job. Who would want to do that? And then I kind of backed into it through journalism, you know, and then suddenly I wake up one day and here I am doing exactly what he did, so. And so when you were making these short form documentaries, 
was it just like, okay, I found it. Like, I enjoy doing this. Like, how does it go from that to being like, I love this and this is like, this is it. I've tried other things and I'm gonna stick with this. I was crazy about making those short form docs. We had, it was kind of, um, it, was a, it was a lab where we were experimenting about storytelling. And what we were trying to figure out was how many characters do you need in order to get people to be so moved that we could change policy if something was really unjust or something. And the answer was one. The strongest number was one. And so it was just a way of kind of experimenting and growing that toolkit for telling that one story so that people would feel moved enough to actually change some injustice. I loved it. And then the 2008 recession hit, the whole, you know, show imploded and I found myself unemployed for nine months trying to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. So I went into uh, financial docs because that's who was employing people at Bloomberg and made uh, documentaries for them and also a series on inventors. And while I was doing, I was profiling all these inventors across America, I realized that all the female inventors, all the inventors of color, everybody who didn't look like Thomas Edison wasn't getting funded. And it, it, over the years, it started to really bother me because I saw some incredible inventions get made and never come to life. And so I was looking for my first feature doc and I was looking for a story that would kind of explode people's ideas of who invents our world. And I found the story of Hedy Lamar and that became my first feature doc. And was that like your first big break? Like, how do you go from, like, how do you make your first feature doc having never made one? I had made docs for television. So it's not a huge leap when you've, you know, I had like nine months to make a doc at Bloomberg and it was an hour long. So I had that muscle of making the docs, making them on a budget, but making a feature doc is a really different world. It's like you become the CEO of your own company and you have to run that company with all the people that you've hired and all the budgets that come in and out. It's like, it requires huge amount of skill sets I didn't have. So I really didn't know what to do. And I, what I did was I went back to my storytelling buddy from my childhood who's my little brother and who I spent most of my childhood making up ludicrous stories with. And I, I teamed up with him and he and I started a documentary film company together and it was his idea that we started with Susan Sarandon, who was an actress who cared about social justice issues, but also someone that my brother happened to know. He happened to know her through mutual friends. And so we all sat down and we had this crazy idea to start Reframed and, and to do the film on Hedy Lamar. Well, Susan Sarandon's not a bad person to happen to know <laughs> or to have involved. That was, a, that was a huge stroke of luck, yeah. My brother's a pretty incredible guy and he is the producer on Bombshell. And I feel like I get a lot of the attention and he actually should be interviewed right now in this seat. Yeah. Well, let me make a note of that. Yeah. <laughs> how did, how did, um, so, I mean, Susan Sarandon's like a full partner, full, like what is working with Susan Sarandon like? Susan is like a den mother who allows you to just kind of walk into her life and set up camp. And she has all these dogs around and all this chaos going on and all these people coming in to meet her. 
And I was just allowed to edit my film in the middle of all of that. And her little dog's on my lap, you know, kind of occasionally pooping on the pad next to me. <laughs> like it was chaos. But she, she kind of allowed that to happen. She loved it. She loved the chaos. She loved all the ideas flowing through her loft. Um, and I couldn't have done it without her help. She, she was the right partner. And it was very surreal. I mean, you know, I loved Susan Sarandon in movies growing up. And here she was like shuffling in and out in her bedroom slippers with six dogs or whatever. It was really wild. Did you have like a pinch me moment of like, you know, like you're still working, but like kind of like, you know, like an out of like body experience of like, is this really my life? Like I grew up watching yeah. this woman and now we're working together. We're, we're all the time. <laughs> Are you kidding? All the time. I still wonder about it. Um, in her bathroom, she has her Oscar statuette. She has all of her statuettes. Everything she ever gets, she crams into this one little toilet uh, in her loft. Actually, she sold the loft now, but she did. And I would sit on the toilet, you know, looking at <laughs> the Oscar and the other awards hanging on the wall and just think like, how did I land up here? Like, what, how is this my life? Well, that was aspirational probably for work. Yeah, oh my God. Tell us something about Susan Sarandon that we would probably be shocked to know. Um, something you'd be shocked to know about Susan. I was with her one day out on the streets. Um, we're just going to get a smoothie, I think, from the grocery store on the corner, which had these really healthy smoothies. And we saw a guy and a woman get into a domestic abuse altercation. And there was a group of people around them not doing anything. And Susan actually shoved her way into the group and separated the man and the woman and told the man off and protected the woman. And I thought, that's extraordinary because this is a woman who can get mobbed by people on the street, you know, and who would be completely within her rights to run away and hide. Instead, she thought only of that woman that was being attacked. And her complete, you know, her first instinct was to throw herself in between them. And it wasn't mine, by the way. I was like, that guy looks really scary, you know? And Susan was like ready to kung fu fight her way through. So she's, she's a wild human. She's not who you expect. Wow, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, my first inclination wouldn't be to go and break it up. As much as I, as right. much as I, I might want to help. Maybe call the police, 911. Yeah. That's what I would do, 911. I use my finger but she like is gonna throw her body between them. Wow. Did you face the stereotypical challenges of, you know, I'm a woman in a business that's mostly male dominated or you just kind of skipped, like never faced that and not, weren't, didn't really experience any of that? Uh, what do you think? <laughs> well, I would think that you did experience all of this. Yeah. I did. I did. I think I was part of a transition. I am part of a transitional generation. And in some ways I had privileges that my mother's generation could never have dreamt of. And I'm really, really grateful for that. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of the Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back 
and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. This summer, the world must answer one question. Why has no one made a popsicle that gets you high yet? That's right, it's summer, and it's time for you to get your hands on America's new favorite product, Danksicles. 20 milligrams of THC in two great flavors, the latest and greatest innovation from IndiCloud. Is IndiCloud the greatest company to come out of America? Maybe. But what we do know for sure is that IndiCloud is the best way to get dispensary-grade cannabis delivered directly to your door, 100% legally. Yes, they ship legally to all states. No medical card needed. Whether it's vapes as big as your head, flowers you won't find in your mom's garden, or of course, popsicles that get you high as What are you waiting for? Go to indicloud.co slash spring24 and get discreet delivery on top shelf THC products. Head over to indicloud.co slash spring24. That's co, not com, to snag 30% off your first order. On the other hand, I think we grew up with this illusion of equality in our generation that was very convincing all the way through college. And then in the workforce, and especially when I became a mom, I experienced some crazy stuff, like to the point where I was up for um, a really important, like a, a role as the head of a documentary department. And I was five months pregnant with my son, Charlie. And I didn't want anyone to know, but I am not somebody who hides their pregnancy. I mean, I was wearing like the world's largest sweaters at this point, but I didn't want to not get the job. And I walked in finally looking like a whale and said, obviously I'm pregnant. And they said, it's such a shame because you would have been perfect for the job. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, why aren't I wearing a wire? I could make this into a show. I mean, they just said that to you. Like, it yeah. was nothing. Straight up. Yeah. Interesting. But you know what's amazing? I had a... I was working with an on-air talent at the time who also happened to be pregnant and was hiding it. And she ended up fighting back and eventually getting me the job. I, she actually championed me. But um, for a while I didn't have it and I felt like, you know, this is why we'll never be equal because I can't hide the bump. It's that simple. I can't hide it. And I had, I had another child already that I, who was three and I had never let them know. They did not know I had a child. Wow. At that time, I felt like I had to just cover it up to be competitive with the men. And now, do you think that same statement will be made like today to your face, at least, if you walked in? Like, have we come, have we made any progress? I think we have, you know, and I feel like I've definitely tried to champion a lot of younger women. I know other women in my position who have. We're really not going to tolerate that for the next generation. So that's going to help. Uh, but honestly, even telling you on this podcast that I have kids is scary for me. I feel like, you know, to this day, I have the physical reaction, like I don't want to be made irrelevant because I'm a mother. Well, that's not such progress that, that, is, <laughs> that this profession has made that. I think that's true. There's still a long way to go, especially with that sense of, you know, women, as they get older, as they become mothers, they become somehow irrelevant in the cultural conversation. And, you know, and it, you're, not, you're not any different in your mind and in your heart as the person who was obsessed with Hello Magazine at 17. 
Right. Are there any of the more well-known like female directors? I mean, I'm sure there's more than I know, but like, are there any, you know, of the well-known ones that you kind of looked up to like a Sofia Coppola, Catherine Bigelow? Like, do you have your favorites? Oh my God. You just named two of my favorites, obviously. Uh, but I got to add Ava DuVernay. She is my top number one icon. Um, Bigelow, just as a storyteller, blows my socks off. Um, Greta Gerwig. We haven't said Greta Gerwig. Well, she's, I just, I, she's on my list too. I wasn't going to go down the whole yeah. list. Yeah, yeah. All of them. I track all their careers. They're my heroes. Yes. They're all great. Yeah, yeah. And they're doing such interesting stuff. But also, I feel like they're creating a vocabulary, an alphabet that we didn't have yet and that I want to learn so I can speak in it, which is this vocabulary of writing films in our own voice, in our own lexicon. And not, I think Bigelow, I'm, if I'm going to be honest, still I felt was speaking in a very male lexicon. But with Greta Gerwig, with Ava DuVernay, I feel like we're starting to break out of that and actually be able to speak in our own voices. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that's how it, I sense it. That makes sense. So how do you go from all of this and these working with Bloom, for Bloomberg and these financial documentaries and all this and bombshell. Now, how does one get from that to this is Paris? And before we get there, did you see American Meme? I did. I did see American Meme before I met Paris. And of course, in that documentary, you go, wait, 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 wait. Holy shit, we need to reframe Paris Hilton. Because you see her, you know, they, I think that they framed her as, as quite kooky, and I understand why they did that. I didn't find that, you know, very empathetic. It didn't give me a lot of insight, but it made me very interested in her. And then there was that line she gave about, the sex tape, where you were like, oh, we need to reframe the sex tape. And that was a big part of why I wanted to meet her. Um, but I was approached to do the doc. I didn't reach out to her. They re reached out to me. And then we were connected over Skype. And I heard her real voice. I talked to her for over an hour. And I thought, this is not at all the person I saw in the media. No, I need to figure out how she created that character and how long she's been hiding in it, and if she'll ever be this person in the public eye that I'm meeting on Skype. Were you familiar, like, with all of her, just other than before you spoke to her, were you familiar with, like, not even just the persona, but everything, like the simple life, all the 19 products, perfumes, like, were you, the sex tape, to your point, like, were you familiar with her whole or were you like, oh, I have to go do a lot of research now? I was familiar with all of it. I hadn't watched all of The Simple Life. I'd watched it, you know, on and off as a kid. I think I was in college or something around there. So it wasn't, you know, I wasn't watching a lot of television, but it was on my radar. Whose radar was it not on? I mean, she was like the biggest freaking thing to hit the newsstands except for Princess Diana. Princess Diana was the only figure that eclipsed her on the newsstands when I was a teenager. And I was in the UK, so that's probably why. Were you 
did you, because to your point about American Mean, which I saw at Tribeca Film Festival the night of the premiere, Paris was there. I mean, I loved it. Were you, does she share, like, did you talk to her about how she feels about it? Like, does she feel the same way that you do of like, we need to reshape Paris? I think she saw the reaction to American Meme and realized that it wouldn't be such a bad idea to do a feature doc. Um, I don't mean that American Meme didn't start to reshape her. I think that they, it did. It just wasn't all about her. So it opened a window to me to what the documentary on her could be. And I think it did the same for her. So when you get the call to, you know, how did you get this call? Like, were you one of, or maybe you don't know the answer, were you one of like 30 people? Were you like on a short list of two? Was it like, no, no. we've done our research and we want you unless you blow this chemistry test? Like, how does that come about? I think there was a long list of directors from what I've heard. Um, I think I was only one of two women. Uh, I remember Paris or Paris's agent saying to me, do you think gender matters when you're making a film? And I went, I want to say no, but hell yes. And I think Paris like leaned right in at that point. And then we just started discussing, you know, how we see film and what's important about film and why the female perspective is so interesting. I think we probably did discuss Greta Gerwig and Ava DuVernay and this whole idea that there's this different language happening now with female film. And I, I'm really excited about it. And I think she is too. So I think we wanted to team up and make something from the female perspective in our own language. Were you nervous for this Skype call? Yes, I didn't know what to wear, you know? I had like six different tops, you know, in my bed and I was like, I am a documentary filmmaker. I can wear anything I want to talk to Paris Hilton. I don't need to worry about this. And then I was like paralyzed in front of my six tops. Like, I, I don't know which one to wear. I can't, I can't decide. So I ended up wearing something my sister designed just an embroidered tunic. And I was just thinking like, if Paris asks about this, I will talk about my sister. And I'm very proud of her and the fact that she designed this. And Paris asked about it and I got to talk about my sister and be like, yeah, she's this amazing designer. And Paris looked her up and everything. And I thought, I do like this girl, yeah. Was she Paris? I mean, other than, you know, was she like dressed to the nines for this guy? No. And when I first met her in person, she was in a black sweatsuit with a black hat on with most of her hair up in it. She looked so boyish, I can't tell you. And it's really shocking physically to be with her when she's been in that boyish, boyish mode because she is the icon of femininity, right? She's Barbie in her character. So when you hang out with her and she's all like shoulders, you know, slouching about, getting a snack, sitting on the floor with you, it feels very weird, very weird. And do you think, I mean, obviously you got the job because you were the most qualified, but do you think it was important? Like, you know, to what you just said, like, do you think it was important for her to have a female director? Hell yes. <laughs> Hell to the yes. And here's actually why. It's not that a man couldn't have made this film or a better film. I think a man could have, but it would have been extremely different because I did things like film her two in the morning, three in the morning in Korea. And it was just me and her in her bedroom talking all night with the camera there. I don't think she would do that with a male photographer. I just think there are boundaries you wouldn't cross. 
But when you're two women talking all night in a bedroom, filming, you know, it is that sisterhood thing. You can plug into that. And I think it just takes you to a different level of intimacy. That makes sense when you put it like that. Like if you're physically trying to picture that hotel room in Korea and a man there, you're like, okay, well, that makes sense. That would be tough to do, you know? Yeah. And how did it work, you know, because you had total control. I mean, it's your, like, talk to me about that. Like, well, okay, let's just go back for a minute. So you have this Skype and then what happens? It's like, good luck. Well, I mean, was it nine months later? Was it a year later? Or was it like a day? You know, what's the timeline between like, and how did you think it went? Like, could you tell it went well or you weren't? It was just poker face. No, I could. I mean, we just had an immediate chemistry, the two of us. It was great. And I started almost immediately after that. And it was a year of just being with Paris, following Paris around the world. And while I was filming, I was also going back and editing in New York. So this back and forth. And at the end of the year, the film was finished. So it was just really, really intense. And um, I would say from the beginning of the filming to the end of the filming, I really did see a transformation in her. And I've only seen that very rarely in my life. I've very rarely seen someone actually change before my eyes. Um, and I've always wondered if it's real, like can people really change? Because it doesn't seem possible in my life. I, don't, I can't even teach myself to pick up my own laundry enough. So how, how can people change? And I think that's what I was trying to explore in this film. And how did she change? She went from somebody who was so kind of uptight about this character and protective of it that she couldn't really explore what had happened to her. She really didn't want to confront her dynamics with her family. Like everything was blocked off. So she was really invested in the character. And I think you can see that at the beginning of the film, a lot of what we're doing is just all character, character, character. And I'm wondering like, when are we going to get past this facade? You know, when am I going to see more of that woman I first met? Because every time we went out to Korea or whatever, as soon as she was on a stage, it was Barbie, Barbie, Barbie. And what happened is through these conversations, it was almost like therapy. And I found out that Paris couldn't actually ever go to a therapist because she'd been abused by therapists at Provo. And so part of her PTSD is therapists. And I started to realize on some level, I think this woman did this film because she realized that she could go through this process without having to go through it to a therapist. And what we were doing was just uncovering layer after layer, especially after that 2 a.m. talk in Korea. We start to then, you know, she's very honest with me and we start to pick this thing apart. And after Korea, you know, there was a time when she wouldn't get out of bed in the middle of the day and I had a whole $11,000 crew waiting on the street. And I had the relationship to her to be able to march into her bedroom and be like, we're doing this. I'm going to give you another hour to sleep. And then I'm coming back and we're going to talk about your freaking insomnia. You know, <laughs> she was like, okay. And, you know, we broke these things apart and really looked at them. And as we did that, she did start to transform. And I saw her looking more and more outward, not worrying so much about her image and everything, worrying a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more about the other children that had been abused the way she was, about the other classmates that had been through this, wondering, researching, looking at ways to change the system. 
And today she's a full blown activist. I mean, she was on the phone with me yesterday about impact and how are we going to break, we break code silence and close the schools. It's a huge part of her life. Like, I can't really imagine the Paris Hilton I, let, I met two years ago really being an activist the way I see her today. Was Korea that, that scene, that was kind of the turning point? That was the turning point in our relationship. Psychologically, I don't know exactly what the turning point was for her. It was a gradual transformation and there were backsliding moments where you felt her retreat into her shell. And I also think COVID has, <laughs> has had a, a part to play because she's been grounded. She hasn't been able to keep traveling. And I think it's timing for her was pretty great because we've done all this psychological work and then she can't move. And she's at home with a new boyfriend and she really gives him a shot, you know, and, and he's a good guy and they really have been building a good relationship. And I think that has been huge for her. And her nightmares have started to stop. So she's actually sleeping and that's been huge for her. So there are reasons that transformation is possible for her. In a way, I mean, listen, no one wishes COVID on the world. I've had days where I'm like, you know, I've gotten used to being in and there's positives to it. Like, this is probably a rest that Paris needed. Right? I mean, there's a part of me that thinks, yeah, this is some, something Paris needed. I think it would be great if she had gotten it another way, like say a long vacation, but, um, Maybe that wouldn't have been enough. Maybe it had to be this. She's been, her wings have been clipped for a whole six months and it's given her a chance to really think about what's important to her. And it turns out a lot of it is making this actual change beyond the dock, which I think was a beginner for, you know, it was an opener to try and get that done. But she kept telling me, I just want to drive into that school and blow it up, you know? And I think she's going to make it happen. Wow. How did you, so how did you, you know, it's your film, like, was there a, like, I'm Paris and I want to be co-executive producer? Like, how did you get total control? She did initially want that control. And I didn't blame her. Why should she trust me? But what I did explain to her is, why should somebody who, who is seeing something that you created really believe what they're seeing? It's a PR document in the end of the day, because you can never really see who you are. But if you give me creative control, I will give a very honest portrait. And that will resonate with people and it will make people more interested, not less interested. And that is something that she really bought into and she took that leap of trust. And I think there were points where she felt like she was kind of sorry she did it. Um, but she came around, she always came around and I tried to really take the time to explain to her my creative process. Um, because especially when you're, tr you're, you're dealing with victims of abuse and trauma, you don't wanna trigger somebody or take advantage or bully or manhandle, right? All those words, you can't. So I wanted her to feel like she was with me every step of the way, but I didn't want to ever cede creative control because I felt like it was too important that I actually show what I saw. And, and that we got there in the end. And when she saw the final cut, it was like the scariest day of my life. Did she see like a lot of little clips leading up to that or was it just like, really? You're shaking no, your head now. I had, I had shown her only um, a couple of seconds of what I'd shot in Mykonos. In Mykonos in the pool, in the blue pool scene, 
it's just me in Paris. And um, that I'd shot, you know, we talked about how beautiful the blue light was and I just lay there and shot it for a long, long time. And I just compiled those images with no music or anything just to show her how beautiful they were. Cause I, I was really moved by how beautiful they were. And she was really taken aback by how beautiful they were too. And I think she thought aesthetically at that moment, I saw her kind of seed another layer of control, like, okay, uh, she wants it to be beautiful. Um, after that, I didn't show her a frame of the film until we had a full cut. And she sat down and she pulled one two second clip and said, that is involved in a lawsuit, you can't use that. It turned out to be true. I pulled that out and she did not change another frame. So there was well, just one She couldn't thing. have, but she, could, she didn't ask. She could have pled, she could have emotionally leaned on me and asked me to consider changing it and she didn't. And like, I keep thinking about that bravery. And then what, there was just one thing where she's like, we'll be sued if this is kept in. Yeah, it was just a piece of archival and it was easily swapped out. Um, everything else is intact as I had cut it. And then I cut it again after that. I, it went through one more round um, because we filmed a bit more and again, showed it to her. You know, she had responses. It wasn't like she, she was scared. She shook sometimes watching it. She found it very, very, you could see the energy kind of moving through her body. Cause can you imagine watching something that's been cut on your life? I mean, ugh. and then I'd see her laughing at moments and like being moved and kind of settling into it. And at the end of the first time she watched it, she just held me and said that I think we're doing something big. So that felt pretty good. That felt like, I think we're gonna make some change. What was the most shocking thing like about Paris? I mean, other than Provo and finding all that out, like just what, you know, like something that was different than maybe the public perception. She's so boyish <laughs> and she's, she's funny in person. She really made me laugh all the time. She's just antic. You know, I tried to include bits of that so you could get a sense of it, but you know the way I included her sort of cantering down the hallway and jumping when her sister rang the doorbell? That anticness is extremely winning in person. And it's like this childishness just bubbles up, bubbles up and you can't help but respond to that little girl energy. Um, it's very endearing. Um, and she very much has kept that little girl alive in her. And it's funny because I don't know if that's partly from the trauma or if it's just who Paris always would have been, but it is very endearing. Well, and I mean, I don't know them personally, but you know, you do get this, Nikki Hilton didn't go through that type of trauma and you know, their personalities are different. I mean, Nikki feels like the consummate grown up. She's yeah. so commanding, you know, and a very powerful figure very sure of herself, very grounded, you know, and she's, you know, she has a very dry, straight sense of humor. I think sometimes people take Nikki at face value too much, but she's definitely ribbing her sister all the time uh, because her sister hasn't grown up the way she has emotionally or in the traditional sense of getting married and having kids. Were you shocked? Like you knew all these things, the simple life and all these other things, but were you still shocked at, 
you know, like the juggernaut that is Paris, like little Hiltons are traveling 30 hours to just <laughs> say hi in the airport for five minutes, which mind you is more, I mean, Paris gives them more than 99% of people in her position would. But like, are oh, you yeah. shocked that just like the Shock. power of Paris Hilton? <laughs> it was bananas. It was crazy. Yes, I was shocked not only by the intensity of the love of the little Hiltons, but at the international nature of it. You know, I have footage in like Bahrain of people going bananas. It doesn't, it has no national boundary. People go crazy for Paris Hilton. And it's an interesting thing because I think it's part of why she's trapped in this character. Whatever the export is that she's become by being this slightly Barbie character, it does provoke this frenzy of affection and it is a really good business. So it's a very difficult thing to escape. Yes, I see that. But then like on the other hand, if Paris was still standing in front of these people without the voice or whatever, or the out or any of it, I still think everyone would still go crazy. Thanks for tuning into part one of our sit down with This Is Paris director, Alexandra Dean. And stay tuned for part two, where we talk about what it was like to work with Kathy Hilton, Nikki Hilton, why Rick Hilton didn't want to be involved, what it was like to work with Kyle Richards, Kim Kardashian, and more about Paris and what Alexandra learned about Paris, some of the biggest misconceptions about Paris. You gotta hear part two. It's so good. Thank you guys for listening to part one. Part two coming soon. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Behind the Velvet Rope. Because without you listeners, I would just be a crazy person with voices in my head. And if you like what you hear, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts under Behind the Velvet Rope. And when you're done subscribing, feel free to leave a five-star write-up review because the write-up reviews actually count. We read each and every one of them. We post the best ones and the reviews really help our shows keep going. And we really appreciate everything you guys say, especially the positive ones. And if you want to find us online, we're at Behind Velvet Rope on Instagram. We are at David Yontef on Instagram. We're behind The Velvet Rope on Apple Podcasts. Or head on over to Patreon, because you know what? There are just some things we can't talk about here. So for our bonus episodes, go to Patreon and type in Behind the Velvet Rope. And if you still aren't sick of me, and you want more David, go to Cameo and book me on Cameo. And you can ask me anything there. I'll answer whatever you want. And I have a bargain basement price of $10. Thank you guys. See you soon.